Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Also, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you the best three stories we have each week. Go to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. And we've heard from Fawn Weaver on our show before. She told us her story of growing up the daughter of Motown royalty, realizing that she didn't fit in wherever she was, and then realizing that wasn't such a bad thing. You've also heard the story of Uncle Nearest's Whiskey, the Tennessee whiskey brand Fawn founded, named after the African-American man who taught Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. And now we're about to tell you the story of how Fawn came upon Nearest's story. And it all began with some trouble she was having with a business she'd invested in. After a frustrating, <laughs> a frustrating time with the founders that I was backing, really, really, really frustrating. We could not see eye to eye on how business should be done and how people should be treated. And after a really frustrating time, I decided uh, I was going to do something that I almost never did, which is I went on vacation. <laughs> and my husband is an executive vice president, one of the executive vice presidents at Sony Pictures, and he also sits on the board for the Motion Picture Association of America. Their uh, Asian, I think it was their Asian council was having a meeting in Singapore. And at the very last minute, I said, you know what, babe, I'm gonna come with you on that trip. I know it's a work trip for you, but I just wanna get away from what is going on. And we got to the hotel. In the morning, we were in the hotel lounge and I opened up the New York Times International Edition. And on the cover of the uh, New York Times International Edition was the headline, Jack Daniel embraces a secret ingredient, help from a slave. And beneath that was a picture of Jack Daniel and his entire crew. And right next to him, to his right, was an African-American man. And the, the thing that a lot of people miss with that photo, but it's what drew me into that photo, is Jack Daniel was the big guy in, in the photo. It was his company, this was his crew but he ceded the center position of the photo to an African-American man. And at the time, no one knew who that African-American man was. And so I, you know, having five days with nothing to do, <laughs> I decided to start diving in and digging in. And it's something, this actually isn't something that's new for me. I've never taken it this far where I dove into the rabbit hole and never came back out but it's something that I enjoy doing on the Sabbath. So my husband and I observe the Sabbath 24 hours a, a week. We do nothing work related. And so what I like to do on my Sabbath and I have for decades is I go into my research rabbit hole. I'll find a topic. It could be something that pops up in my newsfeed. It could be something that I heard about earlier in the week while I was working and just didn't pause to dig into it. And I'll go back to it on the Sabbath. And so, I had literally five days to do nothing 
but to research this story of this African-American man. And so, and so I start digging into this story. And the thing that was ironic is, is we read the story that morning. We were both absolutely blown away that there was this thought that there was an African-American man that may have been at the beginning, at the start, at the founding of this iconic American brand. If you go around the world, there are very few brands that would be considered iconic American. I mean, even if you go with Jim Beam, for instance, who dates back to a similar date, but the company is now owned by Japanese. And so when you're talking about iconic American brands, there's, there's few things that say that quite like Jack Daniels. And so to see this African-American, the picture, the, the center position being seated to this man and nobody knew who he was. They, it was said that they believed it was a man named Nearest Green, but they didn't know. And then I went and I Googled the name Nearest Green, which they had misspelled at the time, which we've now done the research and, and the, uh, it, the spelling was definitely incorrect at that time. But we Googled, you know, Nearest Green and nothing came up except for this New York Times piece and then a regurgitation of the piece, which is to say that every newspaper around the world was reprinting, some of them not giving credit, <laughs> some of them giving credit, but it was the exact same story over and over and over and over again. And, and so I thought, this is insane. How do you have this African-American man at the center of this iconic American brand and nobody has any information on him. And so I, I did try to do digging, but literally nothing came up. And then I went back maybe about four hours later and to see, did I miss something the first time around? And then a Wikipedia page had popped up. Now the Wikipedia page didn't exist before. There wasn't a whole lot on it that wasn't a part of the New York Times piece, but it did reference a book called Jack Daniel's Legacy. So I ordered Jack Daniel's Legacy and uh, had it sent to my home. I ordered it on Amazon, had it sent to my home, and I did whatever research I could do from the hotel room, but it really only lasted about a day or so because after that, there, there was nothing. It was the Wikipedia page, it was the New York Times piece, and, and that was it. So I figured, well, when I get home, I'll read the book. It will probably not reference him by name. It'll probably refer to a colored man or a enslaved man or a slave or a Negro. Or That was my thought process of how it would be uh, spoken about in the book because that's what is common. And so my thought was they're probably just putting two and two together that this African-American man is the same person that was in Jack Daniel's legacy, even though he's not mentioned by name. So that was my thought process. So I ordered the book, but I certainly wasn't expecting much from the book itself. And then a few days later, we finished in Singapore and we went on what was meant to be a uh, Two-day, just kind of an add-on vacation to, I, I believe it was Kuala Lumpur. And we went there, we checked into the hotel, we had a, a beautiful day. And then the next day, we went to a spa 
and we're not big spa people it's not really what we do but every now and again we'll go on vacation and so Keith wasn't participating I went into the spa and did a massage and I think a facial or something and and when I come out I'm expecting to go back to go just pay for it and then or charge it to the room and then go back to the room but I, I come out and Keith is in the lobby and to know my husband is to know he loves me so much but he would not be sitting in the lobby of a spa unless there was something that was needed and so he looks at me and I walk over to him and I I could see concern in his eye and so I walk over and and uh, he takes my hand and he says uh, babe we need to pray come come sit with me and so we sit and I said what are we praying about and he said Brittany has been in a motorcycle accident and it doesn't look good now Brittany is my niece who is as much a, a daughter as she was my niece we don't have any children we've not been able to have children and we've been now we're moving into our 17th year of marriage and so she is very much so that baby girl I was there from the very beginning uh, I was telling someone the other day that she was so funny as a little girl because anytime I would go to the restroom she'd follow me into the restroom <laughs> and I don't know what the fast and I go Brittany can I just go to the bathroom and she'd say sure but she'd never leave I don't know if it was me going into another room and she not being able to see me I don't know what it was but uh, but she is just my baby girl. And so when he said it, I immediately began to cry. And uh, we, we tried to pray for about a second. And I said, I can't, I, I can't, give me, give me your phone. And, and I uh, looked at the text that my sister sent and uh, I responded to the text. And I said, tell Brittany, that she cannot leave me, whisper in her ear that I am on my way. She cannot leave me. I will be right there. She has to hang on. And uh, my sister texted me back within 30 seconds and said, I'm sorry, sis, she's gone. A, a driver uh, hit her head on. They, they were turning and the sun was blocking, was glaring on the glass, and sh the driver never saw my niece and floored it while making a left. So she had, she had not a chance. And uh, my world absolutely shattered. And uh, so we both cried quite a bit to a place where the, the people in the spa, the manager of the spa came over because obviously we were disturbing what is otherwise a very peaceful experience for people and we recognized that. So we went outside and just, I mean, we could not get ourselves together. And finally, uh, we were able to pull it together enough to be able to walk back into our hotel room and got to our hotel room and again, just absolutely lost it. And I probably say, I don't know, you know how you cry until there's literally no more tears left. You see this in, in, in kids, in kids where they'll just pour down tears and tears and then they're still yelling, but there's no tears coming down because they've literally cried all the tears out. And that, that happened to Keith and I. And uh, Keith, he turns to me and he says, uh, 
uh, what would Brittany have us do in this moment? And Britt had just been at our house a couple weeks before. She had just celebrated her birthday and she was at our home and it, I don't believe in regrets. I do believe in lessons. And it was a huge lesson for me because as she sat in the kitchen with my husband for hours talking about me and and I listened to her say Fawn is, has always been a mom to me and, and, and to tell him different stories of different things and ways I've impacted her life and meanwhile I'm responding to emails uh, and and doing what you know is important if you will and uh, she left that night on her motorcycle but Earlier in the afternoon, we had been all been hanging out and having Don Julio 1942. And uh, so he turns to me and he said, what would Brittany have us do? And I said, she'd have us go raise a glass of 1942. And so we left out of the room to go to the hotel bar to try to find 1942. And on our way out, we were passing through the outside area where there's a pool. And I remember Keith walking on a step before me and I being on the step uh, right above. And we had to pause momentarily because hundreds of white butterflies began circling the lower portion of our legs. We literally could not move because they were just circling. I've, I've never seen that before. I've never seen it since. And they circled us for a couple of minutes and then took off. And we looked at each other and said, Brittany has just ascended. And we went to the hotel bar. We had our 1942. We cried some more and uh, we got on a plane five o'clock the next morning, first, the first plane that was out going out and we arrived back. And as soon as I get back to Los Angeles, I go into full party planning mode. I knew Brittany would not want a funeral. She would want for people to feel as though her home going ceremony was the best time that they've had. She would want people to enjoy it. It was what Brittany would have loved. And so for two weeks straight, I poured myself into planning every piece of uh, this this party with, with her mom and her dad and my siblings. And after it was over, we go back home and now I have to actually deal with the fact that she was gone. For two weeks, I didn't have to deal with it because I was in party planning mode. And we get back home and uh, I pick up a package that is on my desk and it's an Amazon package. Now, Keith will tell you there were 20 Amazon packages in my on my desk, but the package I'm referring to uh, was Jack Daniels Legacy. And I open it up and I go to the living room. I sit on the living room and at the time, our living room, like it does here in Tennessee, uh, it had floor to ceiling windows. And I remember starting to read this book and expecting not much. I mean, again, maybe for it to mention a Negro or a black person or a slave or, but never for it to actually say nearest grade. 
And very early on in the pages, Jack Daniel as a young boy is introduced to what the book refers to as a coal black Negro. And he's introduced to him by a person that they are both working for. Uh, Nearest Green was a rented slave on this man's property and Jack Daniel had come to work as a chore boy. So Jack is for, you know, those who do not know, Jack was the 10th child and his mother died when he was four months old. So he was wet nursed by the neighbor. He was a little kid, a runt, if you will. He never grew to be more than five foot two, even as an adult. And so if you think about him as a kid, he's not a great farm hand. He moved to that property when he was somewhere between seven and eight years old and eight years old as a chore boy. And that means anything from going to get water from the well for the family, milking cows, feeding the hogs, you know, whatever you had to do, dealing with the slop. It, It was not glamorous in the least bit, but the book says that he was fascinated by whatever was going on on this property where you had the the mules and wagons shuffling in and out of there, but no one would ever take him to go see what was happening on the other side of the property. And uh, the reason is the person who they were both working for, both Nears Green and Jack Daniel, was a preacher and a distiller. And he married a teetotaler and he had a church on his property. So 338 acres on one end of the property was his home. On another end of the property was his church. And on another end of the property, if you're looking at it as a triangle, was his distillery. So he kept his three worlds separate, his family, his distillery, and his church. And his his family and his church basically issued an ultimatum. And so Dan Call decided that he was going to leave the distillery business, but the distillery never stopped operating on his property and it never stopped operating under a man by the name of near screen so in the book uh, jack daniel is introduced to this coal black negro by the the preacher saying he is the best whiskey maker i know of now in this book the reason why that's important is he says verbatim this is uncle nearest he is the best whiskey maker i know of it's important because there were 16 other distilleries in a four mile radius. So the question became, why was he the best? And why did the preacher want for him to teach Jack everything he knew about his way of making whiskey? And it was because the way that Near Green made whiskey was what we now know as Tennessee whiskey. But I'm sitting in my home in Los Angeles reading this And from the very early portion of the book, you see over and over again, Nearest Green, Uncle Nearest, Eli Green, which was his son, George Green, which was another son. You see them mentioned over and over and over and over again in a biography that is not that big. And Nearest and his boys are mentioned more times than Jack's own family. So I'm reading this and I am falling in love with two characters, which was completely unexpected for me. I'm falling in love with 
the Uncle Nearest character, but also the Jack Daniel character and who they both were and what they represented in this remarkable time. So I'm sitting on my couch and just completely engrossed in this story. And you've got to remember that not only have I just lost my niece and, and just my world is wrecked, but this is now happening in July of 2016. So if you remember what was happening at that time, our country was being divided by race. We had a, a political, <laughs> both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats were using race as a wedge and not very many people had hope at that moment. And I was looking for hope in terms of trying to escape what I was dealing with and grieving for my niece. But in this book, I'm finding a different kind of hope because of the situation we're in in America at that time. So I'm reading this and I remember uh, telling my husband when he walked in, I said, babe, I really like this guy. And he's like, who? And I said, Jack Daniel. And he was so confused by this because he didn't know what I was reading. And so I start telling him about the book and, 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 uh, and the fact that Nears has mentioned over and over and over and over again. And I remember when I looked up from the book at that moment, I remember right in front of me where the window was seeing a white butterfly, a single white butterfly, just kind of fluttering back and forth, back and forth. And it took me back to those white butterflies that circled our legs. And I, and I remember looking at that and saying, Hey Brit, but not thinking very much of it again. This is, I think when you lose someone, you begin looking for hope in any and every thing. And I remember looking and saying, Hey Brit, and going back to reading and just loving this story. And I, I got so engrossed in the book and it's not that long of a book, but I got so engrossed in the book. And because I, I think still trying to escape, trying to look for hope. And I remember taking the book with me in the kitchen and still kind of reading while I was, I didn't know what I was doing, maybe making tea or something, but I'm still reading and doing something else. And I look up and in the window is a single white butterfly going back and forth, back and forth. And I go into my office a little later in the day. I pick the book back up. I start reading it some more and here comes that white butterfly again. And I began to associate the white butterfly with my niece and I began to associate the niece with this book and, uh, and my love for this book and this story became interwoven with my love for my niece. And I can't explain it other than to say, I had to tell the story of Nears Green and Jack Daniel in a way that I believed the story was lived. And I believed my niece was directing it from heaven. It's the only way that I can explain it. And it, as crazy as it sounds, because if we go back, we're, we're talking about a brand, right? that normally when you're talking about a whiskey brand, you're not talking about butterflies in heaven. And, you know, but that is what, that is what was the origin of my interest. I can tell you that I had absolutely no plans to go in the whiskey business. I, I am a, a child of two teetotalers. The last place I would have been putting my money was whiskey. Uh, and yet, 
I began looking at the story and diving into the story and wanting to know more and more and more and more. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And it became very clear to me that the only way I was going to really learn as much about the story as I felt like my heart was being pulled to learn was to actually travel to Lynchburg, Tennessee to interview the descendant, the only descendant that that New York Times article had referenced. Uh, a man by the name of Claude Edie at the time was 91 years old. And so I set my heart on going to interview him and I had decided what I wanted to do for my 40th birthday was to research the story of Nearscreen. On the outside looking in, it would make no sense to me whatsoever. Being in it, it made all the sense in the world because that book and that story was providing me hope that I needed in that moment and I didn't want it to stop. And that hope, well, it led Fawn Weaver down a wild path from buying the house at the Dan Call farm where Jack and Nearest worked to meeting with her descendants who told her that the best way to honor Nearest's memory was a bottle with Nearest's name on it. And that would turn out to be a company named Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, which of all people Fawn Weaver started. And by the way, that bottle has been the most awarded new American whiskey in American history, with over 90 nods from the industry. Vaughn Weaver's story, Uncle Nearest's story, and the Jack Daniels story, here on Our American Stories. continue our conversation with author Tim Harford, who writes about economics in a way, well, it's just storytelling. And here on Our American Stories, that's what we care about. And his book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, is chock full of great stories. And we're going to drill down on just a few. Tim, you've said that 50 inventions in your book were not chosen based on some perfect measure of importance, but instead, these are 50 inventions that most of us just don't give much thought to, but my goodness, they changed everything. One such invention is the limited liability company. Without the LLC, modern life would be very different. Talk about that. Yes, and some thinkers believe that they're, they're more important than, say, electricity or the railways or these, these amazing um, physical technologies. And, and the reason being, uh, the limited liability company was very important in allowing companies to raise money. Um, so the, what is essentially true about a limited liability company is that um, if, um, if you and I, say, decide we're, we're going to um, invest in a company and we, you know, we, we decide we're going to put $10,000 into a company and try and get it all started, we may lose our $10,000. But we can't then be pursued for any more money. Like I've put my $10,000 in, you can't get $20,000 out of me or $50,000 or a million dollars if the company does something wrong. Yeah, my, my liability is limited to the amount of money I originally put in. And so 
having this protection for investors made it more attractive for investors to to put money into companies. It made it easier for companies to raise money because their investors knew there was there was a limit to their downside. And that in turn was important because it meant that suddenly you could raise money from people who didn't know you. Previously, you would only be able to raise money from very close friends, from family, because their liability would be, be unlimited. If you did something stupid with their money, there was no end to the amount of trouble that they could have. So, so limited liability enables companies to go out and raise money from a large number of strangers to saying we've got a great business plan and if you if you give us some money we will we will invest it wisely and you know you'll make profits you think about companies such as um general electric trying to set up an entire electricity grid or you think about the railway companies i mean how is a railway company supposed to make money you've got to build an entire railway and you've got to put the trains on it before you can collect a single dime from any railway passenger Clearly, you've got to raise a huge amount of money. So the limited liability structure allowed that to be possible. And so you, you could have these huge infrastructure projects, water, uh, railways, electricity. There have been a lot of downsides, of course. A lot of people have been ripped off by limited liability companies. Companies have taken too much risk. Um, people get enthusiastic. They pour too much money in, bubbles. Um, there's a long, long history of people being ripped off. But overall, I think you would say this was a very important step in the creation of, of major uh, multinational companies. They really couldn't exist without limited liability. Indeed. I mean, a capital is the oxygen of innovation. I mean, how do you innovate without capital? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Otherwise, you've just otherwise got very, very small companies or, um, or you have to already be a billionaire to set up something major. That's right. And let's talk about concrete. This was fascinating to me. Uh, why does concrete matter and how did it help develop modern life? Well, it matters because it is ubiquitous. It's probably the substance that we humans use more of than anything else with the exception of water. There's a lot of concrete in the world. Uh, it's a very, very flexible, very versatile building material um, from the point of view of an engineer or, or an architect, uh, actually the trouble with concrete is once it's built, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't change it. It's not like bricks. Bricks, you can, you can take down a, a brick wall or a brick house and reuse the bricks. But for a structural engineer, for an architect, it's a very, very um, robust, flexible, and inexpensive material. And so we pour a lot of it. Concrete bridges, concrete skyscrapers, it's everywhere. Um, there is an amazing fact that I checked three times and then some colleagues of mine at the BBC said they didn't believe. And so they, they fact-checked me and they came back and said, no, you were right all along, Tim. And that fact is that in three years recently, I think it's 2008, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly, but three recent years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. It gives you a sense of the, the building boom going on in, in China and how incredibly important this material is. So, I mean, that's why it matters, it, because it's everywhere. Um, where did it come from? Well, we've had concrete for a very long time, probably 10,000 years. It's been discuss, uh, discovered in um, settlements in Turkey, eight, ten, maybe 12,000 years ago. The Romans used a lot of it. 
the um, the Parthenon, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, there's this uh, ancient church. It's nearly 2,000 years old called the Parthenon. It's made of concrete. And if you go in and you look up, it's, it is recognizably concrete. It reminds me a little bit of the Washington, D.C. metro system. It's quite striking. Um, and the, the big leap forward uh, was in the 1800s, uh, a French gardener called Joseph Mernier was trying to make concrete flower pots. And they didn't really work until he realized he could reinforce them with a steel mesh. And there's this amazing thing about the the steel. The steel and the concrete, as it happens, expand and contract when they get hotter and colder at almost exactly the same rate. Um, so this is very unusual for two materials. But it means you can put steel reinforcement inside concrete uh, and it won't instantly crack when, when the concrete hit, heats up. It makes the concrete vastly stronger under certain kinds of stress and it means you can make concrete skyscrapers, concrete bridges, uh, which, which would have been impossible. So um, it's a remarkable material. We are maybe storing up trouble for ourselves because um, some of those reinforcements are starting to get exposed to the elements. They're starting to rust. That makes the concrete way, way um, weaker. And so you see these dreadful bridge collapses that happen from time to time. That's catching up with us. And uh, it's probably going to catch up with China too. Let's talk about index funds. I, I was uh, stunned to see it here, but then I read the chapter, and my goodness, it belongs here, doesn't it? I think so. Paul Samuelson, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, a few decades ago, Paul Samuelson said that the index fund ranks alongside wine, cheese, and the wheel as a, an invention of human history. I mean, that may be um, slightly exaggerating things, but it has saved the index fund has saved a lot of people a lot of money. And the basic idea of an index fund is... You want to invest in the stock market rather than pay some expert to pick stocks for you, um, for which they will charge you handsomely. Why not just invest in the, the market as a whole? Just say, well, if the market as a whole goes up, I make money. If the market as a whole goes down, I make the money. But I'm not going to worry too much about picking stocks. And perhaps surprisingly, that turns out to be really just as good as paying an expert and cheaper. There's lots and lots of evidence that suggests that um, it's very hard for expert stock pickers to do much better than, than just whatever the market is doing. So this was observed by Paul Samuelson, this Nobel Prize winning economist. And he wrote an, an essay saying um, somebody should invent a kind of fund that just invests in the index. What then happened, this is probably the first time in human history this has ever happened, is somebody paid attention to something that an academic economist said <laughs> and said, you know what, this is a good idea. His name was John Bogle. And um, Bogle had just set up his own um, investment company. And um, he was looking for low-cost investment strategies. And he came across Samuelson's challenge. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going to develop an index fund. And at first, he was a laughing stock. Other Wall Street funds criticized him, scorned him, accused him of being a communist, accused him of being unpatriotic, because, you know, Americans, Americans aren't willing to settle for the average. They, they want to do better. And initially, nobody invested, nobody showed up. But slowly, 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 uh, his fund got more and more investors. And it's called Vanguard, or the company is called Vanguard. It is one of the largest fund managers on the planet. 
Uh, and this strategy now of just passively investing in the market is hugely popular. And it's all down to, to Bogle and Samuelson. And I, I saw an estimate that something like a trillion dollars, if I remember rightly, something like a trillion dollars of investors' money has been saved that would otherwise have been paid in fees to Wall Street over the last 40 years. And that's winners and losers for sure. They are the winners being the public and the losers being the experts. And I might add, it allows ordinary people to go into the markets and just play the economy over a long period of time without the worry of picking winners and losers themselves. Absolutely. And it's how, how I do it. I mean, I write for the Financial Times. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I have quite a keen interest in markets. But I know enough to know I don't think I can beat the market. So I, I use, as it happens, I'm not paid to endorse them. As it happens, I use Vanguard index funds. They seem as good as any. And um, you know, it's the same performance, but for lower fees. So uh, if a Financial Times columnist and... Um, Professional, professional economist is saying, uh, I can't do better than a passive index fund. I think the same is true of most of the people listening to this program. There may be a few who can do better, but uh, a lot of people would do better just putting their money in the market and uh, crossing their fingers. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And to hear more of Tim's book and the other stories in this remarkable book, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The stories are just so good. All of these stories about modern invention, modern life, modern business, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to help perpetuate policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And now it's time for our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's story. Jack Marucci is the director of LSU's athletic training, but he's also a dad. My son was, uh, he's about seven, eight years old, Gino, and we used to watch a lot of baseball. I'd even play old videos with Pirates, Roberto Clemente, so that became his guy. And he liked Bonds as bad. He saw the black and two-tone wood bat. He goes, Dad, I like that. Man, I want to play with a wood bat. That's different, because wood bats weren't even mentioned back then. You know, now you got wood bat tournaments, and everybody likes the wood bat. So uh, I end up calling all these bat companies. They all had stock bats, none more small enough or short enough. Everybody maybe was an inch off. I needed a 27. And they only stopped at 29 or I stopped at 28. So I started looking around and there were some old bats stored here at LSU. I'm looking at them. And then we had a quarterback, Matt Mock. I started talking to Matt. Matt played for the Cubs for three years. I said, Matt, I'm, I'm thinking about making a bat for my son. I'm going to make one. I'm going to bring it in. Tell me what we need to do to, to make this thing tapered right. So I made the first one and uh, top heavy, you know, I use electrical tape to, <laughs> to do whatever. And I, I carved in, I think that one was the Geno Crusher. So the next one I start making, I got a lot better. And that was the Geno Slugger. So he starts getting in Little League, he's using a wood bat. Okay, this is different, but he's, 
he's one of the best hitters. So everybody on the team goes, well, if he's hitting good with that bat, I want one with my kid's name on it. So we'll form a little company, Marucci Bat Company. So I bought a shed. I bought it from Canada. It was a cedar shed. I told the guy what I wanted because I thought cedar's going to last longer in this weather, the mildew, the, you know, it's not going to rot. I said, I want doors in the front and the back. He goes, why do you want that? I said, have you ever lived in Louisiana? I said, it's like living on the equator. I said, I need airflow. So I put a fan in there and that was my bat shop. And it, you know, that was 2002. Jack went to the trouble of buying a shed when he was just making a few bats for his kid and some little league friends. Because I had to get a lathe, I had to put it somewhere, and I had a carport. So I ended up, after football, I always joke around, I said saving was a little stressful, so it was a nice stress relief to get it away. That's championship coach Nick Saban. So I'd spend nights and the neighbor would come over and go, what are you doing? There's sawdust everywhere. I go, I'm making bats. He goes, you're making bats? He goes, give me a couple. You know, everyone, as soon as they saw it, they go, oh, 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 I want one. But he didn't charge them for it. I wasn't at first. So I started 25 bucks. I mean, the wood cost probably 15. And because uh, money was never a thing. I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I was going to charge somebody for it. Then I said, well, I better start charging because, you know. Because this is getting a little bit ridiculous? <laughs> well, one day, Jack was going to hang with a friend of his, Eduardo Perez, who just happened to be a major league player. And we're catching up, and I told him what I was doing. He goes, bring me one up. I said, all right. And he gave me a model, which was a common model. Everything was based off of Louisville Slugger models, a C243. I said, all right. I think I can find one in the pile because LSU had some wood bats laying around. I found one that I would hang it on the hanger. I had two hangers, you know, I'd straighten out the, the wire and it would hang right over the lathe. So I'm looking at it and I could, you know, feel it. I would do it by eye and feel. I would cut the bat. I think I made him two. And I mean, what's he going to do with it? Maybe he's just going to put it up in his house. So. He meets me in front of the hotel and he, and he pulls out the box and his eyes light up. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm gonna use this tonight. I said, what? I said, this thing's gonna explode, Eddie. I said, I seen seven and eight year olds swing this. I said, you're gonna swing this, this thing? He goes, I'm gonna sneak it in because I wasn't licensed. You know, you, there's all these regulations which you find out. And uh, he goes, I tell you what, I want you to come down for batting practice. I said, okay. He gets me down there and he goes, this bat is unbelievable. Then he introduces me to, to Barry Larkin. He's playing for the Reds. He uh, says, I tell you what, we're playing in Houston. I want you to make me one. <laughs> I said, all right. Then he introduced me to Albert Pujols. One of the best players on the planet. He was very leery. And Eddie talks to him in Spanish. And that was the first bat was ever given to me to, to replicate. So... Me and my son go to Houston, and and he says, get there early for batting practice. He wants you to bring the bat. So I'm walking in the stadium with a bat. I said, I I gave it to my son. I go, here, Jimmy, you take it. He was only, I don't know, nine at the time. And I said, they won't yell at you. I said, I'm not going to bring a bat in the the stadium. 
You technically need Major League Baseball's permission to make bats for its players. So for Jack and his son to come into the stadium like every other fan coming in for the game and to deliver their bats to one of the guys that was actually going to play was pretty darn rogue. We walk all the way down, they're taking batting practice. And there's people around in the stands. I don't know what to do. It's the first time you know, I've done this. And um, Larkin kind of sees us. He gives us thumbs up, and everyone behind us is going, oh, that's funny, he recognized, you know. We're in the stands with everybody else, right behind the dugout. They're all trying to get autographs, and there's people everywhere. So the bat boy comes over. We hand the bat over to him. Everyone's going, wow, how's he getting him to sign that bat? They're all going, yeah, how's he getting to sign? We're trying to get all of our, they're kind of getting mad. So the bat boy takes it right over to Larkin. Larkin starts putting on the, they call it a moda stick, the tackiness and like pine tar it up. And everyone starts going, wait a minute. He's gonna hit with that bat. <laughs> you just brought it to him. He starts taking BP. So we're watching the game. His second at bat, he was the first guy to get a hit with it, up the middle. Again, goes, hey, that's big time. And um, that was the first hit. And to me, I said, that was it. I mean, I'm, I, this thing was in my backyard a couple days ago, and this guy's using a major league baseball. I said, oh my God. <laughs> I mean, this is ridiculous. And when we come back, more of the story of Jack Marucci, the director of LSU's athletic training and the founder of Marucci Sports. Here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues after these messages. back with our American stories and we return to the story of Jack Marucci, a father whose son asked him to make wooden bats that he could use in his little league and unintentionally these bats found their way into a major league game. Eduardo Perez, I can't say enough good things about him. He helped the company more than anybody. He was fantastic because he talked to all these players and he's showing them and I'm sending him more bats, and he's sneaking him in the game. He's leaving me voicemails. Man, I hit Alinea against Nomo. And I mean, it was just the excitement of, it was like contraband. You know, we're sending contraband up there. And um, he goes, you're going to get a call from Manny Ramirez. I said, okay. He goes, you know how Manny is. One of only 25 players ever to hit 500 home runs. So I get a call from Manny Ramirez. He goes, I need some bats for the playoff run. You're going to be in the playoffs. You can't use these bats. So I said, well, Manny, we're, we're about to take off. We're about to play Georgia. And so we're getting on a flight, and I'm cutting them off. And I said, let me get back, and I'll cut them. So I spent three nights making bats because one of them I didn't quite like, so I redid it. I made three bats for them. I said, maybe, maybe I'll use them for batting practice or whatever. I don't know. And... Uh, so I put a model number on it. It's called a CB24. So this is 2004 now. And 
and I got pretty good by then. The finish, I, I was hand doing everything, putting a nice, I mean, it looked shiny, it looked like furniture. That's what Eduardo Presnell said, it looks like furniture. Fast forward a couple years ago, I saw Orlando Cabrera on that same team. And why he's significant, I'm watching the game and Orlando Cabrera is using these bats in this playoff game. So I asked him, I never talked to Orlando about it. He used Manny's bats, I said. I said, weren't you afraid you're gonna get in trouble? He goes, no. He goes, let me tell you something. I hit like 370 in that series. And those bats, that ball was coming off. So this was two years ago I'm talking to him about that 2004 playoff. And he goes, you know, I remember those bats like it was yesterday. And he goes, I always wanted to know, I didn't know what company it was, I wanted to order more, but never heard of it. And uh, he goes, that model number, that CB. I said, well, let me tell you something. Somebody gave me a tip about five, six months after that series. They were on eBay. I found two of them. I have them in my office. I bought them back. I didn't tell them who I was. I had those two bats that you hit with in the playoffs. Cabrera hits it deep in front of left. Orlando So I said, you know what the CB stood for? He goes, no. I said, curse buster. I put CB to break the curse. The curse buster of the Yankees. The Red Sox hadn't won a World Series since 1918, 86 years ago. Allegedly cursed by their selling of Babe Ruth to the Yankees. All the way back in 1919. The Red Sox were down three games and they came back and they won the World Series. And I have those bats in my office. I told that story to the Hall of Fame. They wanted them, you know. It's just, it's one of those things, you just never know. And um, so Marucci Bats kind of started taking off. And the next big player would be Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran and we end up having the whole Met team. And all those people in the division saw those bats, those guys were hitting well. And the Phillies took off with Ryan Howard, won the World Series, our whole team was covered with our bats. The word of mouth was unstoppable and especially about the terrifically crazy stories that major leaguers like Carlos Beltran had and shared. At the time, you know, he ordered a half dozen. I always wanted him to order small amounts because I had to cut them at the time. And, and, and then, then we got more automated, obviously, but I, I was getting tendonitis. I, I swear to God, I, I got bad. This is the first time I had epicondylitis. I told him, that I, I would tell him that, and I would tell the clubhouse guy, if it's a bad guy, I don't care if he's the best player, but we don't want to do bats for him. We, we were trying to turn down business because the quality of wood, we only have so much. So he orders the bats, we ship them out, and I get a phone call from him. Jack, you... You only sent me five bats, I ordered six. I said, I know. He goes, what do you mean you know? I said, do you understand that I was trying to get you the six bat, I cut like 10 to 12 bats. They weren't the quality I wanted, in silence. He goes, that is unbelievable. So he goes, you not. You don't make like batting practice bats? No, what do you mean batting practice bats? So being naive and thinking, I'm just gonna give you the best quality, companies that he was using says, you know, I only can get, I'm not gonna mention companies, but he could only use four to five bats out of the dozen. He felt the other ones were subpar. That's how they did it. Even for the most elite players in the most elite baseball league on the planet, 
the greatest of the great. It would be like giving Michael Jordan a pair of $30 sandals to play basketball in. If this is how they service the top, how do they service the rest of us? Our bats didn't matter if you were the lowest guy to our pool. It's the same wood. It was always the same. Nothing. There was no variance. And he loved it. So I always told people, you know, we were always chasing the quality. You're not going to chase the dollar. You're not going to chase that money. Chase the quality. The stuff will come. A lot of people flippantly say that they're focused on quality. It's one of those inescapable buzzwords like customer focused, but that is rarely true. At Marucci, they refuse to put their seal on a bat unless it is absolutely perfect. We're dependent on an organic piece of material that it's not like a metal bat where you can fabricate it. You're not fabricating a piece of wood. You're dependent on Mother Nature, so you can get in a piece of wood and it may have ingrown bark, it could have defoliation on it, it may not dry the right way, it could bend up bowing. So now you got to warp. So there's so many factors. And that's why the company decided to buy a wood mill on an Amish farm in Pennsylvania so that they could have a stable supply source and one that they can control, at least try to. And still... If you look at the wood that comes in, probably only 13 to 14% is used for Major League Bats because of how selective we are. Their 86% rejection rate is absolutely nuts, and it's actually even worse, or Jack would say even better, given the commitment behind it. Once the approved wood gets into their process, they're able to make about 1,200 bats a day and a big chunk of them won't make it through their quality control checks, about 300 of them. A fourth of their employees' daily work gone and wiped away. This translates into an actual rejection rate of 89.5%. And for some context on this, for how it is for most businesses, Johnsonville Sausage founder Ralph Steyer told us that he was concerned about their rejection rate of 5%, and he ended up getting it down to 0.5%. One bat maybe touched 22 to 24 sets of hands before it's out on the major league field. So it's, it's, we're just, we're obsessive on quality. Then we start developing a, an idea. Players wanted to become part of what we're doing. Other companies are paying players to use their stuff. We've never paid a player to use a bat. Never thought, why would I do that? They, they want them. Why, why? Here's a novel idea. They want to buy into us. So we have 18, probably 18 Major League Baseball players are investing in the company. So there's a lot more people that have probably benefited than I am, even financially, which is, which is good. Jack could do that, given that he doesn't care about the money. His concern is a greater one. The clubhouse guys loved us because we weren't in there all the time and we weren't trying to sell to everybody, you know. I've told players if they act up early on that we don't want to do bats for you. If you're embarrassed, you wouldn't believe some of the conversations. We had a player throw a bat in the minor leagues and I told him if we, if we do this again, we're done. We're not making you bats anymore. You know, and it, some of these guys are never told stuff like that, but I, I believe that was the right thing to do. When you're not desperate like that, 
it, it makes you different. But then when you become a little bit driven by it, it, it changes things. So we became the number one bat company probably about two and a half years ago. We passed the Louisville Slurp and uh, by a pretty large margin now. But, um, you know, you're in sport and it is a game of inches. And if those companies made that bat one inch longer, I wouldn't have probably made bats because they would have made a bat for my son and that would have been it. <laughs> one inch. One inch. And what a story, folks. Chase the quality, the rest will come. And my goodness, what an idea letting the Major League Baseball players themselves own a piece of the company rather than chasing them for a darned endorsement. When we come back, more of the life story of Jack Marucci, director of LSU's athletic training, founder of Marucci Sports, here on Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment and series continues. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the story of Jack Marucci, who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat maker in Major League Baseball in the matter of only a decade. As a reminder, Jack Marucci is a world-class athletic trainer. He wasn't a world-class wood maker or really a woodmaker at all. He took an eighth grade wood shop class, and that was about it. He had to buy secondhand equipment, a lathe, for $150 just to hope to fulfill his son's simple dream of playing with a wood bat. So how is it even possible that this non-woodmaker, non-baseball expert made a bat that was so good that it became the highest selling in Major League Baseball. Was it pure luck? Did he just accidentally make something that was the best? From the outside looking in, it may seem like it. How did how'd you learn wood? How did we do it? I said, well, you go to the University of Google and you can learn a lot. Then you can go to, then you can get a master's at the University of YouTube. And, you know, there's so many resources if you use them and, and you have connections to call people. You talk to the physicist up in Michigan who's done a lot of testing and you learn, you pick their brain, you, you learn about wood with the people who make the drumsticks with all the great rock bands and you know there is, a, there, is, there is something to the type of wood and the way you dry it and there is formulas but you can learn that. You can if you, if you want to, the resources are there if, if you have the passion for it you can. If you have the willingness to, Jack was around 37 years old then, and a lot of folks at that age aren't willing to learn new things. Heck, I'm 29, and this city boy turned country boy finds it absolutely daunting to learn new things like taking care of a riding lawnmower. I, I think it's part of our nature. That's why our parents and grandparents came over to this country. They were willing to take chances. I think it's built inside of us. I think we're a little bit more adventurous, maybe because of that. My mom 
was 11 when she came from Spain. And my grandfather's from Italy. So we're half Spanish, half Italian, but, and that was the makeup of most of the people we grew up with. Everybody was pretty ethnic. You know, we went to the Italian church and St. Teresa's. We thought that's how it was everywhere. Notice how Jack said the Italian church, not the Catholic church. In immigrant hotbeds like Jack's Uniontown, Pennsylvania, or my ancestor's Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport, each ethnicity had its own Catholic church. No, it wasn't the Catholic, it was the Italian church. We went to, there was the Polish church, and you had the uh, Russian Orthodox church. That's how it was. So, I mean, you think, uh, you know, that's all you know as a kid. But um, her dad came over to be a coal miner, and we went back to see her where she grew up, and it was like San Diego. I'm going, why would your dad leave this place? They lived right by the ocean. But I guess times were so bad, they had a civil war, the economy was bad, and the war was breaking out. This was like in the early 40s. So, But her dad comes over here right before the war, War II, and he's trying to save money to bring the family up, but he can't get back and forth. So my mom didn't see him until 11 years, until he could save up the money. So she was 11 the first time she saw her dad. Her sister and her brother came over, didn't know English. They put them in second grade to learn the English and they worked their way up. Then my dad's side, my grandfather came over when he was 15. Then he got deported because you had to be 16. Or you can see it on the Ellis Island report. He got to Ellis Island and somehow he got through all that. And they said, well, you're only 15. And they deported him back. So he had to go all the way back. Then he came back when he was 16. And these aren't a couple hour flights that we're talking about here. We're talking about boat rides across the ocean and long ones. It's gonna be probably a month. So he started a restaurant. So we came up kind of in the restaurant business. So my dad ended up being the butcher. My dad did the bartending. We did the managing. Him and his two sisters took over after my grandfather passed and was built from nothing. It was just a little deli. And they built it into a place where banquets could seat up to six, seven hundred people. I mean, it's, it just kept growing. And that's when I first probably came across the first professional athletes because we used to check coats, me and my brother. We're like 10 years old, and you're checking coats, man. And they're giving you these big coats, and we'd stay up late, and we're so tired. I mean, it's like almost 1 o'clock, and we never stay up this late. Imagine making your 10-year-old today stay up until 1 a.m. to work for you. You wouldn't be able to. The labor laws would call it child abuse. That was child abuse. We were so tired. We'd wrestle in there. We'd have coats all over the place. You know, we'd do whatever. And uh, we'd start being silly and, we'd, you know, we'd give them a coat and we'd, like, we're coughing, go, how about a buck? You know, we'd do something like that. How about a buck? You know, and so, so I mean, we would just do these, all these goofy things, but you could make, if it's a hundred coats, you're making a hundred bucks. You know, you split it. That's 50 bucks each. Not bad for a 10-year-old. Joe Paterno would come in or, you know, for a banquet he was speaking. So we were a sports-oriented family. Again, from the area where we grew up, a lot of people know the history of even just quarterbacks from there. Within a 50-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh, they've had 36 NFL quarterbacks, including Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Joe Namath, Jim Kelly, and Johnny Unitas. 
leading it to be called the Cradle of Quarterbacks. And by the way, in basketball, Pistol Pete Maravich is from there too. The name Maravich is a very ethnic Croatian. But, you know, I think then, and, and if you look at it from that culture, that's why you had a lot of Italian boxers. That's why you had a lot of Irish. You know, they were immigrants that came over here just trying to do anything to get out of poverty. So they learned to fight, they learned to start a restaurant. So they were very innovative, and I think that we were very fortunate to grow up in that type of culture. But when you're, when you're growing up, you, don't, you have no idea. You're just living and breathing it, not knowing that life's not like that for a lot of folks, and that this immigrant mentality is a gift. So, so we're going to Bamante's in New York. It's the oldest, I think it's, it's in the top 10 oldest restaurants in the New York metropolitan area. It's in Brooklyn. This restaurant was the one where they did the TV show, The Sopranos. They filmed a lot in there. So I get in there. It's not a big place. And I'm sitting there, and all these people start coming in. Bobby Valentine comes in. Here comes Tommy Lasore comes walking in. Then Joe Episcopo comes walking in. Then Leonardo DiCaprio comes walking I'm sitting next to the guy. We're, we're laughing. We're going to wake up tomorrow. And go, this, this really happens. These people just start marching. All these Italians. Jack yeah, then here's, here I am. Yeah, here I am from Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And my goodness, if you didn't like Jack Marucci's story in those first two segments, my goodness, the flavor just keeps getting added into the mix. Of course, he's down in Cajun country now, but he was a, a Pittsburgh boy, which means... Football, football, football. But it wasn't just that, folks. That early work experience as a young man, we hear this again and again in our successful entrepreneur stories. Work young. Child labor laws would have probably prevented Jack from getting some of the seminal experiences he needed that formed his character, formed his nature. And he was having fun. Yeah, he was up late, but 50 bucks he split. 50 bucks for a night as a 10-year-old. That'll get you working. And, of course, that immigrant story. We love the immigrant story here in this country. And remember, he didn't call it a Catholic church. He called it an Italian church. And I know because I went to an Italian church, the Sicilian part of my family. It was not a Catholic church. And that's why I was smiling. And you are, too. Jack Marucci's story. What a classic American story. YouTube in his way. self Taught all the way into becoming America's premier bat maker. His story here on Our American Stories continues after these messages. stories and now the final portion of this remarkable American dreamer's stories on Jack Marucci who went from making wooden bats for his kid to becoming the number one selling bat in Major League Baseball. Let's pick up where we last left off. On Marucci Sports' website there's video testimonies from MLB players including Albert Pujols and Andrew McCutcheon. 
And even though their videos are supposed to be about baseball, how they honor the game and their Marucci bats, both of those guys started talking about their faith. Here's Pujols on hitting his 600th home run. First of all, I need to thank God for giving me the, the opportunity and the ability to be able to do that. That's who I give all the glory and all the credit. And here's McCutcheon with just a ton of kids at the annual baseball camp he hosts in his hometown of Fort Meade, Florida. I'd like to thank all y'all for coming, all right? Anybody heard the Lord's Prayer? All right? Before every game, when I go out, I like to go out in the middle of center field, and I like to say a little prayer. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Powerful stuff, and stuff that Jack's company keeps in the videos. Most of the media takes these uncool parts out, taking out of their stories what they say is the central force in their lives. It's important to who they are. It's important that people should hear that. That it, Don't be ashamed of it. I think people are coming more ashamed of it than they want to talk about it. So, that's one of those things I think has gotten slanted a little bit. So I think faith is, it's funny how when hard times come, people, they want faith, they want religion, you know. You should be, when good things, how about thanking them, you know, that, that side of it. Let's not, it's not always one side of it, but it's funny how people evolve back to that. Why is that? Well, there's something pulling you there. Faith is part of hope. And once you take hope away from people, it's not a good thing. You always... You know, when I talk to athletes, if they're injured, you always have that hope. Faith is the same lines. So faith gives people that hope, gives them comfort. We think that's very important to have that message because that's who they are. It's the right thing to do. And it's important to these people's lives. Paul says that, that, that is, he's strong with that. that that's, that's real now. That's not just saying it. He lives it. Coach Bowden lived it. Coach Bound didn't cuss. He lived that life. And Jack doesn't cuss either. Even though this Italian Catholic comes from the perfect background for it. Believe it or not, I don't. I never smoked. I don't drink. And we grew up in a, you know, restaurant and I, and I have nothing against it, but I don't know. I just, I just never, never have. And I'm in an environment where cussing is very uh, <laughs> prominent. We had a coach one time. He came over. I'm not going to mention his name. I talked to him. He came in and goes, you know, I speak two different languages. He goes, I speak English and profanity. <laughs> and he did. I think profanity might have been his uh, dominant uh, language. But, um, uh, and I have not, again, there's, there's not, we're in an environment of it. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't think you have to do that. If you go to church on on a weekend. You should, it, it's a time to be thankful. <laughs> it's the only time where you really can sit down and, you know, we're so busy. And we try to say our prayers at night, but a lot of times, you know, we'll fall asleep or we're, we're exhausted or we, we do. We don't. But that's a time where you're, you're captured and just be thankful for what you have instead of going over all the negative stuff. But that's self-talk. That's a whole other topic. And what we try to do and, you know, how, how the mind can overpower you. So, but that's where Faith and religion can give you a little more clarity if, you, if you're invested in it. I've seen people change because of that. We have a player, and his name's Cecil Collins. 
Cecil Collins was probably the best running back we ever had here. He only played three games and three and a half games. That's it. And yet Jack is insisting that he's still the best they've ever had. You can look at the YouTube stuff. He had a little, he, he struggled as a young player. He got in trouble. I justified he was in prison for about 18 years. 18 years, he just got out a couple years ago. I reconnected, been trying to help him with some things, invite him to the bowl game. If, if, if religion didn't change his life, then it hadn't changed anybody's. He doesn't cuss anymore. He, doesn't. he is a true testament. And he almost died in prison. He was eating, um, it was like chicken and rice. There was a bone that cut him. He was internally bleeding. And they weren't going to take him to the dog. He finally got there. The surgeon saved his life. He was 150 pounds. And this guy, his personality, he is a unbelievable, he's a gem. He's got a family, he's, he's, he's become an electrician. Just a productive, this guy has a future. In just the way that Jack says, this guy has a future. You can hear how proud Jack is of him. And yet that's not how a lot of mainstream culture would look at him. He's the best running back that LSU's ever had could have made tens of millions of dollars in the NFL. But now, he's an electrician. And you're saying that he's a gem and has a future? It says a lot about who Jack Marucci is, an integrity that other people can't help but to respond to. When we were together, Jack pulled out his phone and played for me a voicemail that someone left for him the other day. He didn't do it to brag. He was just so tickled by it. I'm so happy for you. And I'm, I don't know you. I'm proud of you. I love what you do and how you do it. Love the story of your company. I wanted to let you know that John Brubrick has shared it with my entire Major League staff here in spring training. We're listening to Clint Hurdle, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And there were only a few of us that knew the story going in. So for about 50 guys, it was the first time they heard. Basically, a dad made a bat for a boy that he loved and it's turned into what it's turned into um, because it was just about unconditional love and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad your servant and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally so if I can ever be of service to you please let let me know um, I will send you my contact information and I send out a daily email of encouragement I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be of service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. Uh, buy you dinner or something. Okay? Over and out, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That phone call also says a lot about Clint Hurdle. To be operating at the highest level of your profession as he is, and to make the time to call someone, someone you don't know, just to tell them how impressed you are by them, and how they've lived their life. Think we could do that more in our lives? I know that I can. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And what a story. I think that may be my favorite right up there with Ralph Lauren and Bernie Marcus. And our American Dreamer stories can be found at ouramericannetwork.org. We've done a bunch 
and my goodness, great work as always to Alex Cortez. Our great crew here goes all over this country to find these great stories. And the redeeming virtue and feature of our stories is that we love to shine the light on the good. And unlike most media enterprises who shine light on the ugly and the train wreck, we love light and we love real hope and darkness. Well, turn to another channel if that's what you're looking for. And our American Dreamer series is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network works hard to fight for public policies that help small businesses become bigger ones. And by the way, the founder of Job Creators Network is a hero of mine, Bernie Marcus, who at 49 years old found himself out of work. He and two partners, Ken Langone and Arthur Blank, started a little company you all know now, and it's called Home Depot. And those three men built this great enterprise and then have spent their later years giving a lot of their money away and showing the virtue and generosity uh, that capitalism can bequeath. And I want to add also that you can get all of Our American Dreamer series stories over at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And so I want to leave this story playing the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates' message, his message that was on Jack Marucci's phone because it's worth hearing again. And don't we all wish that a message like this would be left on our phone by a complete stranger and that our life's work, what we do in our lives, our integrity and our character can leave this imprint and can make this kind of difference. Integrity and character, we talk about it a lot here on this show. Let's leave with Clint Hurdle. This is Our American Stories. Basically, Dad made a bat for a boy that he loved and it's turned into what it's turned into. Um, because it was just about unconditional love and uh, there was no motive other than to be a dad, your servant, and then the way you've gone about it since then so professionally. So if I can ever be of service to you, please let, let me know. Um, I will send you my contact information. Um, I send out a daily email of encouragement. Um, then I might send you the website just in case you'd like to join. Uh, but John Brubaker is a very good friend of mine. He speaks volumes about your integrity and character. So, you're all good by me. Let me know if I can be a service. Maybe we connect sometime during the season. Uh, love to run into you. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. 